Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Hello, this is the Red Fox Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, bringing you uh, the best bits from my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing if you download the Times Radio app, which we fixed so it works properly now. Uh, so you can download that wherever you get your apps from, or of course you can listen to the show live on your DAB Radio smart speaker or at uh, times.radio. Coming up, um, I've been chatting to Louise Casey. She's advised the last five Prime Ministers about all sorts of things, homelessness and deprivation and tackling poverty and troubled families and all that sort of thing. But she's launching a new campaign to try and tackle hunger in the run-up to Christmas and beyond. She's been telling me why she thinks that people who've done well out of the pandemic, not just businesses, but people who've maybe been working from home and saved some money, uh, should think about uh, helping out those who need it most. Uh, so that is coming up. But first, it is Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Daniel Finkelstein and David Ornovich. So it's almost approaching a year since the general election. How are you? How are you celebrating, Danny? Getting the the bunting out, having <laughs> well, an outdoor party with six six of your closest friends. Yeah, I, I once went to a, a celebration of the 40th anniversary of the Marshall Plan, and when I told a friend, he said, "I'll be celebrating that quietly at home," <laughs> and that, I think, and I think that's probably what I'll be doing. What about you, David? What plans? What plan, are you getting your your um, get Brexit done bunting out? Uh, well, it's rather disappointing really, to discover, I mean, because you don't know this, but I do, that Danny is actually a very talented break dancer himself. Um, <laughs> and what he's not told you is that he's going, he's actually uh, orchestrating a, a custom made break dance for the, the, for the anniversary. What a good uh, idea. Leaving, it's called Leaving the Readers in Limbo. I, I... <laughs> Well, actually, that's a very good point. Actually, when we had a celebratory limbo dance for the uh, for the anniversary, in which you never quite get under the bar, um, uh, I think I think kind of would be appropriate. It is the, the thing that you feel the one year on from the uh, election is that it feels as if it was forty years ago. Yeah. It feels as if it took place in a completely different era, and it feels as if in a year's time we'll feel as if we're in a completely different era again. In other words, everything yeah. is so kind of odd and accelerated that all the kind of usual things that people say about oh there's got to be a swing like this from the last election there's got to be a that from this from the last election and it shows that so-and-so's got a big task or so-and-so's got a small task and all the nonsense about the red wall that people go on and on and on about as if something kind of fundamentally huge had happened rather than something which was quite easily reversible had happened all that's going to be for the birds and we'll look back on it and say actually it was an election at a particular moment which soon passed. 
And it does feel like we really are in limbo, Danny, in that, um, uh, you know, the polls, you know, they are, you know, Labour and the Tories are neck and neck. And it does feel like in the new year, vaccine starts being rolled out. That could break, but it could break one way or the other. Either Either the Tories get a boost because, you know, life is going back to normal or... Sometimes voters think, well, actually, this might be the time when we could uh, look at look at an alternative and it could break the other way. But at the moment, this is a sort of this is a, uh, a fake battle that we're looking at. Yeah, I'm anticipating that it'll, it'll break more towards Labour. That is my central estimate. You know, these these things are never you know, you're making a prediction about the future could easily be wrong. And there's still a chance that uh, that doesn't that it breaks the other way. But I think um that eventually time for a change is going to start uh, gnawing at the Conservatives. Um, uh, uh, that just happens after several elections. But in addition, is what I call the Jaws effect, which was that, you know, Woodrow Wilson found he did worse in areas that had shark attacks in 1916, even when he wasn't responsible for the handling of them. And that is because people who feel unhappy tend to take their unhappiness out on the government. While people will feel a sense of liberation... I think there's also going to be a sense that the economy isn't doing very well, that they're going to have to be tax rises probably eventually to pay uh, for the things that we've, uh, you know, we've spent and to pay for our future goods now that we don't have so much money. I think it's going to be a very tough period for the government. And therefore, my expectation is that it'll break towards, um, towards Labour rather than towards the Tories. And actually, even more than that, if they, I mean, I anticipate there will be a deal. And although it will be a pretty rubbish deal, the government will say it's an absolute, it's a miracle. You told us it couldn't happen, but we've done it. Um, so they will do that. But if there isn't one, there's no deal, then it's going to be really awful for a while. It's going to be, uh, and it's going to be pretty bad as it is. Um, what we don't yet know is who gets the blame for what within, in the wash up from this. But I think from a year's time from now, we'll be sitting down there, we'll say, this has been a really tough year. Yes, we've come out of the pandemic, but things are not looking good. People are not getting jobs. Um, uh, businesses uh, are closing and not starting up at the same level. There will be some kind of innovations. And we're not pretty particularly happy. That's, that's my prediction. Yeah, I was struck. When we talked about Keir Starmer's polling last week with Ipsos Moy, because they're... They go back to the 70s, so it's quite a good way of sort of comparing it. Keir Starmer's actually doing uh, pretty well compared, you know, historically. I think only Tony Blair was doing better at this point. But interestingly, on the sort of, you know, best issues, Labour had already overtaken the Tories on, uh, I think, on the question of employment and unemployment. And they hadn't been in that position for a long time. And it does feel like the, um, the nature of an economic downturn does sort of suit a Labour Party in opposition, Danny. Well, it suits any party in opposition. So elections are very uh, strongly correlated with economic outcomes. But the thing to warn about is that uh, we're not going to face an election for four years uh, and people tend to vote on the way the economy is going rather than the way it's gone. Uh, so economic pain felt now doesn't necessarily lose you the next general election. It can contribute, but it doesn't necessarily. So it is early to make this judgment. But that's why I'm anticipating that in this next year or two will certainly be very difficult for the government. There, there's a question over whether or not it will be able to time its way uh, you know, we'll be able to find the right time f- to have a general election because that is absolutely critical to to election outcomes. Um, so, I, you know, I I'm not surprised that Labour's begun to make that progress. I do think the big challenge for Keir Starmer now is going to be on. Um, the fiscal issue, right? He's got the party wanting one thing, his um, 
Whereas the public want from Labour, you know, uh, uh, to show a sense of responsibility. They always worry about that with Labour. Now, they're given a bit of an opportunity because I think the Conservative parties borrowed so much and Boris isn't that inclined to try to uh, to reduce that borrowing. So they have some advantage there. They're not facing a normal fiscal Conservative uh, government. Um, but um, nevertheless, it's a challenge for him and he has yet to make that choice. Um, let's, uh, well, in fact, let's stick with Keir Starmer and talk about Keir Starmer and Bridget Jones. Um, I talked about this briefly on the show yesterday. So Helen Fielding, who wrote uh, Bridget Jones's diary, has told uh, Radio Times definitively that Mr Darcy, obviously played by Colin Firth in the films, uh, is not based on Keir Starmer uh, in a blow to his credibility. Um, uh I mean, I must I must admit, I was never quite sure where the similarity came from. But there's a separate sort of point, isn't there, um, uh, Danny, about uh, appearance does matter in politics. Yeah, and actually it was interesting because Helen Fielding also then said a lot of quite flattering things about uh, Keir Starmer. You know, it certainly mattered for William Hague that people thought... I remember a, vo- a voter in Harrow, I rang up to try and persuade her to, to vote for me in Harrow West in, 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 uh, in 2001, and she said, I'm not voting for William Hague, he's got a silly voice. And I said, well, if you don't mind me saying so, that's not a great reason. And she goes, I do mind you saying so, because it's my reason. Um, and, um, that, that, and, and that is, um, uh, that is, I think, how voters, you know... That you can't argue that. So there's the, there's the famous case of Warren Harding, often thought of as one of the United States' worst presidents, uh, but very tall and good-looking, and that certainly helped him get elected. And then you look at the career of John F. Kennedy. There's been this new biography out this year, the first half of Kennedy's life. Well, he was, or in fact, more like, you know, four-fifths of it. He was um, <clears throat> dazzling. Uh, in his charm uh, and everybody either wanted to vote for him or go to bed with him or do both uh, and um, it was a and so it does matter a lot I, I think Keir Starmer is certainly uh, attractive enough not to have the problems that um, that William Hague or Ed Miliband had with voters sort of thinking they were kind of quote odd looking or odd sounding um, he does have a, a slightly uh, sort of slightly strange voice but i don't <coughs> you know i don't think that's a disqualification i would say yeah. overall he's pretty telegenic and although that may sound superficial to discuss it it really isn't because it does help determine election results you are only saying he has an odd voice because you know perfectly well that several people on Twitter have said that I sound like him oh that's true uh, finkelvich regular listeners have said that you sound like Keir Starmer that's right. And Danny has read this, has now said that Keir Starmer has an odd voice. You flatter yourself, I haven't actually read it. <laughs> I'd uh, be amazed ha- how little time I spend thinking about your voice, David. It, it, it's extraordinary. Well, in that case, I'm not going to let you hear it for five seconds. Listen to this. <laughs> oh, thank goodness for that. The, the emergency tape will kick in if we leave complete silence. <laughs> no, but what you don't know is that I used to work at The Independent with Helen Fielding, and my conceit is that actually Mr Darcy is based on me. Um, <laughs> what? What are you laughing at? And uh, um, uh, this thing about appearance, you know, we've, we've long hold this notion that a, a bald leader can't get elected. 
Um, so Ian Duncan Smith's problem apparently was that he was bald, although some of us might think that there were other kind of contingent problems. And the problem with Ed Miliband and William Hague was that they didn't quite seem to belong to the same planet as most people. William Hague had done that famous speech at the Tory party conference, age 16. I'm young people, you know, in that strange kind of voice of his and so on. And Ed Miliband <laughs> See, always appeared Keir to be... and William Hague, it turns out, quite the movie, Bremner. <laughs> well, exactly. But they, all, but they both appear not to come from quite the same planet as voters yeah. do. So one of the things that you have to assume somehow or other, by and large, at least since the days of Sir Alec Douglas Hume, is that actually you have some kind of kind of connection with humanity, uh, with general humanity. And if you don't, and if you mm. appear too political and too strange, then that's going to tell against you. How does Baldness that work with Margaret Thatcher, though? I mean, you know, because it's interesting that. I mean, maybe it's because she was a woman that... The rule, the sort of way that people looked at her politically wasn't the same. But I have often wondered about that. No. Uh, it was, you know, because because it was certainly. Um... Oh, we've lost, we've lost Danny just as he was about yeah, to Yeah, we have, us. we have. He, he was about to make a wrong point anyway. <laughs> I think he was probably about to tell us that he either does or doesn't fancy Margaret well, Thatcher. Well, well, the thing about Margaret Thatcher was that she really, really worked hard on the idea that she wore, had housewifely virtues, commonsensical virtues, got from the shop and from being a mother and so on. And she was always being pictured cooking stuff and so on. Although I do remember one particular thing in a colour supplement which said an ordinary family, son, Mark, home from sw- from Harrow is cleaning the swimming pool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah. think, I think I think you're and actually you, she she sort of cultivated that idea that she was just like uh, I, I mean I've often thought that actually the pop you know in the in the choice between David Cameron and Ed Miliband David Cameron might be a posh twit but people have met posh twits uh, before um, at the school gate or you know whatever whereas you know the guy who does the Rubik's cube and is obsessed with with baseball. That sort of that does sort of slightly mark you out as being a slightly um, uh, slightly strange uh, individual. Uh, let's uh, let's move on because I'm quite keen to talk about briefing walls and the sort of endless interminable one Brussels sauce said <laughs> followed by a, a London sauce and fish is sorted. No, it's not sorted. Um, yeah. <laughs> are you following every twist and turn? Well, I, the, the, <laughs> for me, the funniest moment of the week was when Robert Peston, who is obviously a huge cheese in the media world, suddenly tweeted out, stop telling me fish is sorted. So I tweeted out, will everyone stop telling Robert fish is sorted? And I felt like saying he doesn't like it and it's not clever and it's not funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But the, but the problem that he was having was that somebody apparently in some kind of European delegation had told people that fish is sorted. The Guardian had gone with fish is sorted. Uh, number 10 had then come back and said fish is not sorted and told Robert the fish is and convinced him it was not sorted. And he was now tired of hearing other people being briefed by other people that fish was sorted when he was being briefed that it wasn't. And this is fantastically typical of what's happened during the course of the last few weeks with people. I mean, because there is so much positioning going on and so much kind of expectation management going yeah. on that it is literally maddening. And I think it drove, drove poor Robert Peston mad. <laughs> I would say this. I think. I think one thing when people read the briefing is they often think that all of the things that appear in the newspapers appear because somebody phones up a journalist 
and briefs them. That it isn't that way round. Most of the time, the journalists are phoning people round, and they're trying and they're asking the questions. This has um, two effects. One is that's why sometimes things appear in the paper before the government wants them to get out. Um, it's not deliberate, and they haven't briefed it. You know, on what's going to happen next. Somebody was asked a question. Second thing is people often say things to look good to the person asking the question because they don't want to answer I actually don't know because I'm not in the room and I haven't been told right? <laughs> uh, people 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 don't want people so they I, I used to have that all the time when I worked for William Hague there'd be stories in the paper about uh, reshuffles and I knew that those stories were wrong because William hadn't made up his mind yet um, and and f- indeed the st- he hadn't said to anyone what he was thinking because he hadn't decided himself and he didn't behave like that. But what had happened is that someone had been rung up and asked what he was doing and they didn't want to say, I don't know, I only speak to him once every six weeks and although I therefore know him a bit, I don't know what's going on right now um, because that would, make, that would reduce their political currency. And so I do think that's one of the reasons why you get contradictory briefings but also you get these briefings... People are showing off what they know um, to journalists because they don't want to look as though they're out loop. I also thought it's possible that actually somebody phoned up somebody on the Danish delegation and said, is, is fish sorted? And that happens to be Danish, but are you having a good day? Uh, and they just said, <laughs> yes, totally. Um, yeah, it is, a, it is a constant. We were talking to Bruno Waterfield on the show yesterday about this, about you know, his job in Brussels are constantly trying to pick through why are you? T- who are you? Why are you telling me that? Can I trust you saying that? Why is that the opposite of what the other person I just said? Uh, and then you've got the sort of... Because you're right, there are conversations that journalists have with people and they try to piece it together. But then there's also, and you see it on Twitter, uh, you know, someone from the, the Tories or Number 10 fires off a text message to every single political journalist who all then tweeted saying a government source says, like they're you know, the only person to do it. Um, uh, and then we just go around the whole, the whole thing all over again. Um, just before I let you go, it's, we've sparked quite the, the debate about um, attractive politicians. Helen in Wokingham says, I voted Conservative most of my life, but switched to Nick Clegg. When asked who I voted for, I replied, Nick Clegg, not too shabby. Wink. And then uh, somebody else who hasn't put their name on it says, Keir Starmer, I can't see it. This is after you basically said that you fancy Keir Starmer, Danny. He said, uh, uh, I I can't see it. It looks as if he doesn't wash his hair often enough. He cuts a 1950s dash. So uh, I'm glad that we've got the nation to, uh, got the nation talking <laughs> on the big issues of the day. That was Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. Finkelvich, of course, uh, giving us their take on the news. Up next, my chat with Baroness Casey. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. And now we've got my chat with Baroness Casey, Louise Casey. Ma- 
Matt Shirley here on Times Radio. Uh, now that even before the pandemic hit earlier this year, 4.2 million children were living in poverty in the UK. So what we're going to do now is try and take a look at what pol- poverty looks like right now in 2020 and what we might be able to do about it. I'm joined by Dame Louise Casey, who's advised uh, governments of all colours, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, and early this year uh, was asked by Boris Johnson to oversee the Homelessness Task Force. Uh, she's now launching a campaign to try and tackle hunger in the run-up to Christmas. She joins me now. Hi, Louise. Hi. Hi. Uh, nice th- to be with you. No, thanks for joining us on Times Radio. Uh, it's difficult to know where to start with all of this. I mean, wh- where does what does poverty look like in 2020? Because the, it feels like the divide between the haves and the have-nots uh, is perhaps greater than it's been for a very long time. We approach Christmas with lots of people talking about, oh, I'm eating too much and getting the turkey and the celebrations, tins and all that sort of stuff. But for a lot of people... The reality of this period and the run-up to Christmas is really tough, even before we had a pandemic. Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think the issue is that we knew already that uh, there's been a rise in poverty, um, uh, certainly just huge use of food banks. We didn't have food banks uh, before 2010. I don't remember in previous uh, lives really having to worry about food banks um, and people queuing at them. Uh, and I think, Matt, what happened was that essentially because of austerity and, you know, the government has good reasons as to why they wanted to bring public finances under control, as they would put it. But one of the uh, consequences of that is you have the sort of perfect storm, really, I think, of cuts to public services, uh, particularly local government, then kind of a massive reduction in personal subsidy to people with the welfare benefit system being overhauled, with some welfare benefits now being back to a sort of 1990 rate at the same time that you had a rise in the cost of living. And obviously what that has meant is that the biggest group of people that are increasing in poverty are what we would call the working poor. And they're people that essentially many of us think, and many of our parents anyway, uh, you, you could work your way out of poverty. There's this sense, isn't there? If you work hard enough, take on an extra job, save, look after your finances, you can work your way out of poverty. And that kind of stopped before the pandemic. But I think why I'm particularly concerned today and particularly concerned to do something about it is I think what the pandemic has done has just sort of ripped all of this a bit apart, that essentially the use of food banks is up exponentially Um, We've got people queuing for hot food, uh, including families. And, and, you know, you can't level all of this at the government's door like they didn't predict a pandemic that wasn't in the in the sort of, you know, lexicon of what we thought was going to happen in 2020. But I think we can see that a sort of doubling, almost a doubling of the number of people on universal credit. Nobody was planning for that, Matt. And that has huge implications. There's one London borough, Barking and Dagenham, that's not at the poorest end of London boroughs. It's it's not it's not up there with places like Tower Hamlets, which has the highest levels of child poverty in the United Kingdom. But somewhere like Barking and Dagenham had 13,000 people on universal credit in March. They now have 34,000 people on universal credit. And on top of that, in the rest of their working age population, 40% are furloughed. So that weekend, you know, when everybody's wondering what, what the Chancellor, who's you know, an unprecedented Conservative Chancellor, really, with the 
with the sort of care and support and packages he's put in place. Nevertheless, there were a lot of people thinking if he didn't extend that, they would also join the queue for universal credit. So I, I'm at that stage where I think, look, we've got to get through this winter. It's not just about Christmas, Matt. There's, you know, I, I work a well a, a lot of my time in homelessness and things like that. People care a lot around Christmas, but we're going to have a really tough January, February, March to get through before there's a vaccine and the legacy of this pandemic will be, as as is already being said by others, a massive recession where essentially I think we, we've, we've got to get our act together on what building back Britain actually looks like. And what is the reason behind that? I mean, is it because universal credit isn't enough to live on? It, it, people living on, they just, it just literally needs to be higher in order for people to have enough food. Is it because people... Um, uh, make bad choices. You know, that's often an allegation that's um, leveled that, that some people make, you know, bad money choices and they don't uh, manage their finances. How is it that in the 21st century, a country like Britain, one of the richest countries in the world, has so many people who struggle to do the basics of put a roof over their head and a, and a meal on the table? Well, I think you can't ignore uh, kind of the last decade, really, of austerity um, and things like, you know, the rent that has gone up so exponentially that has pushed you know when when things get tough for the middle as it were you always know that the bottom are pushed further and further down and I think that on top of that then I do honestly think this pandemic is just so shocking in terms of how many people it's tripping into poverty so yes you know the Chancellor has put an uplift into universal credit for a short period of time it's an extra 20 quid a week but still it hasn't done anything. The government hasn't done anything, for example, about the fact that 60 percent of people who are on universal credit are in debt. And guess who they're in debt to? They're in debt to universal credit because they weren't paid monthly. They, When they lost their jobs, they needed money immediately. And universal credit asks you to wait for five weeks. And I met a woman uh, only uh, been out and about uh, quite a lot, actually, recently. And this woman both her and her partner were furloughed. Um, they had three children. He left her during the summer. So she's gone on to universal credit. She's never been on benefit in her life before. And she waited eight and a half weeks before that benefit came through. And she was bewildered and, and kind of totally bewildered and didn't really know where to start. And what she'd done was essentially just try to get the family through using uh, food banks as opposed to, um, you know, tr trying to get any uh, any loans or anything like that, which, of course, is a really good thing. Don't don't borrow money off bad people. It only ever leads to, to worse problems. So what I'm trying to say today is that, you know, together with these charities, people like Fairshare, who are one of the beneficiaries of the Times campaign as well, the Magic Breakfast, Social Bite, Trestle Trust, We've got every local authority politically as well signed up across London. This goes across the political divide in London. And it, within the week to two weeks, we expect local authorities around the rest of the country to sign up to the campaign as well. And it is really old fashioned, actually. It's kind of if you've got money, can you donate it? If you've got time, can you donate it? If you've got food, can you donate it? And obviously there we're working with business in the community to try and give um businesses the chance to step up and help even more. I mean, Matt, some people have done well out of the pandemic. You know, some people haven't had holidays. They haven't spent money. They've been, you know, either furloughed or vast numbers of people working from home 
where actually they haven't had to pay for travel costs. I would just like all those people, if they could, just to think what could they stick in to help somebody else. We are a country with a long, long tradition in philanthropy and charity. We're a worldwide leader in philanthropy and charity. We, we started a, a lot a long time ago and ahead of many other countries. I think the pandemic is a moment for us to be as charitable as we possibly can, not just over Christmas, but into the new year. What do you think, has something gone wrong in society that you sort of need to make this case? Is, 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 is the people who've done well blind to those who are struggling? Does there need to be a sort of reset of society, if you like, that um, the amount that the well-off, and whether that's, you know, like you said, individuals at home who've, who've managed to save a bit of money over the summer, or big businesses which have done quite well out of it, does there need to be a, a sort of reset so that um, the safety net is properly catching people at the bottom? I absolutely think that one of the legacies from the pandemic is that we have a a, a real levelling up and a reset. And I and I don't just think that's about the government. Of course, I think the government should be, you know, thinking about assembling the best possible group of people they could get across the political divide, the kind of, you know, poverty equivalent of sage, really. So if you were serious about this it's like you would actually be trying to figure out how do you take this forward now we know we have a vaccine on the way and what are the big issues that you would look at but it is also about asking people that have you know coped well in this pandemic to help you know either locally in their street locally in their local council area or if they want to to get involved with a campaign like this i do think it's a time that that that, that actually we all need to just remember we're stronger when we're all together and we're all together when we don't have children that are hungry or we don't have people desolate and on the street or indeed have old people in care homes where they are deeply unhappy and not well looked after. So for me, levelling up is about trying to actually tackle this unprecedented situation that the country finds itself in and, and to be world leaders in how we go about doing that. News Casey, you, um, as I mentioned in my in- introduction, you were uh, overseeing the homelessness task force for Boris Johnson uh, until you stood down earlier this year. Obviously, we saw in the early stages of the pandemic, lots of uh, charities rallied around, hotels threw open their doors to um, homeless people, and and actually, and we've we've spoken about it on the show uh, several times before, and actually helped people, you know, have that reset in their in their circumstances. What are things looking like right now? Because obviously the weather in the last week or so has really turned. It's obviously much, much colder for those who are on the streets. Uh, what What is the situation now? So uh, the homelessness work was, was and remains really, really an example, I think, of where government charities, businesses, everybody did the best they possibly could in the fastest time we possibly could to give... Um, homeless people the chance to if they needed to self-isolate and those numbers are huge Matt so um, wh- when when we started out when I just sort of rolled my sleeves up and said to Robert Jenrick do you need a hand we were thinking we would need like six to eight thousand uh, places bed spaces or hotel rooms or um, uh, you know uh, holiday parks all sorts of things um, by the end of it over 20,000 people uh, had been helped by that um, initiative. And I think the numbers of people on the streets really, really dropped. Um, and I think we, you know, 
I remember once uh, a, a, a colleague in Birmingham saying, Louise, we've got Steve Philpott. Remember, so he rang me on a Friday and went, we've got six now. I said, OK, where are they? <laughs> are they apart? Are they OK? Do you think there's any chance they'll come in? And he said, no, nope, they won't come in. So I said, OK, let's just keep an eye on them. Let's just leave it. I think the numbers have gone back up a bit, Matt. I, I mean, I don't know specifically what they are, but my sense um, sort of being out and about is the numbers have gone back up, but they're not as high as they were before. And certainly Greater Manchester, I saw Andy Burnham tweeting out that their numbers are lower this year than they, they've been in several years. So some good has come out of that work. But the thing here is, is actually you, you can't be short term. And I think that's where you know, one needs sort of really big government and big society, dare I use that expression. Um, but essentially what you're looking for as you as you head into this winter is everybody to do whatever they can to get anybody that they think is suffering through this winter, hence the COVID community campaign that I'm talking about today. But as we move into 2021, we should be looking at uh, what is needed to put this country properly back on its feet. Um, I would include homelessness, particularly street homelessness. And, you know, this winter we're looking at 90,000 children in London alone growing up in either bed and breakfast or actually vast numbers of them now in converted office blocks where the space for the entire family is smaller than a car parking space in a, in, in a supermarket. Some of the conditions people are living in are really, really grim. And whilst all of other families in their own homes are enjoying being with each other, you know, maybe having university students home earlier than usual, you know, pulling out all the stops to try and make this Christmas as special as they can for them and their families. It really is, whether it's this campaign they donate to, your own one that you're running at the Times or others, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we all try and do a little bit to show that we care about our fellow human beings and that's what's going to be so important I think but not just for Christmas I am really worried about January February March they're always the tough months for those of us that work in issues like poverty and homelessness everybody gets through Christmas Matt and then the cruel reality of January February March take hold so we've got to keep this going this goodwill this energy this fight really, and then what we need to do as a country, and the government needs to lead this, but we all need to help with it, is work out how do we have the best legacy we can to come out of what has been one of the worst crises that most of us um, have ever had to live through. It feels a bit like there's two conversations going on in the, the country. There's the one that you've just been describing, is the, the reality for... Um, thousands, millions of families um, who are struggling. And then there's a conversation that goes on in Westminster about, oh, can we have tax rises? Oh, no, we can't really, because they're in the Tory manifesto that we wouldn't do it. And, uh, you know, um, spending cuts are coming down the line. And, you know, and before you know it, we'll be back to, you can't cut, the, you know, the welfare budget enough. Voters love it. And those two, it just feels like there's a sort of parallel universe going on. Does the, if Boris Johnson picked up the phone to you, and prime ministers down the years have often picked up the phone to you, uh, would you t what what is the message that you would give to him that actually this is this is such an enormous moment and and just politics as usual and saying oh well we promised we wouldn't put up taxes you know in the end this comes down to money no, doesn't it? It, it? A lot of it comes down to money and it comes down to um, attitude and. You know, I think that the vast majority of the British public 
you know, even people that were furloughed and okay, their income dropped, or somebody for the first time in their career is knows somebody else who's been furloughed or somebody else that's lost their job. I, I, I think the thing that's hard to convey, because a lot of people are working in their own homes, in their, you know, Whitehall is operating very much remotely, is it's hard to convey the strength of feeling that I think is there about, look, we, we kind of need to not worry about what was in manifesto commitments and this and that and the other before. This pandemic has knocked the country for six. It's absolutely noxious for six. So what we have to do is make sure that we respond to that as a big government. You know, big government does big things, not lots of small things or retreating back into a shell of a, a, a manifesto or an agenda that was there before COVID. I mean, this Conservative Chancellor, you know, Rishi Sunak stands there offering financial packages to people. That's not normal behaviour necessarily <laughs> for a Conservative. And, and I, have, I have worked with five uh, Prime Ministers over many, many. And, and I think, you know, Times readers care. Times listeners care. Telegraph leaders care. You know, I found it very interesting when I first started working for Shelter, which, let's face it, is a lifetime ago, it's 30 <laughs> years ago. I remember pointing out to all of the sort of young Guardian readers that worked at Shelter at that time and saying, your biggest donor is a middle-aged woman who gives you 10 quid a month as literally ask no questions. You get a standing order for 10 pounds a month and they read the Telegraph all the times. So, you know, when you're all with your lefty ideas, this, that and the other, remember <laughs> that something like hunger for children and homelessness goes right across the political divide. And it was David Cameron that, that, that wanted to do the Troubled Families programme. I did it for him. But what they wanted was a huge programme that would reach into the lives of some of the families that were both costing the most in terms of public services, but also were at the most vulnerable. So there's form here across the political divide. And to be fair to this prime minister, he knew what was happening over the summer. I met him with Robert Jenrick uh, during the, the pandemic over rough sleeping, and he was committed to it. I just think that we need to look at the country as a whole. And, you know, I am warming to the idea that you have a sort of a, a poverty alternative to sage that or a royal commission that you know what we need here is a beverage moment that brings the country out of this and that's the type of territory we're in so look let's get food on the tables of everybody we can this winter let's not be shy about giving let's be kind as we possibly can I've even got some changes I, I'd like the government to make even over this winter around things like universal credit but actually in 2021, it's a grown up moment for the country to seize and not slip back into business as usual. That would be such a shame, Matt. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 